Blog Talk Radio. My name is Michael Cohen, also known as the Brooklyn Trolley Blogger, shameless plug. Uh, and I'll be hosting tonight's New York Mets discussion, but not without a little help from my friends. Uh, allow me to introduce them to you with haste. First, one of my co-partners here at the Metsian Podcast and friend, Rich Sparago. Hello, sir. Hello, Michael. How are you on this glorious evening when the Mets are playing well? Oh, if uh, you're anything like me, uh, we're feeling giddy. Uh, (laughs) On behalf of Sam and Rich uh, and the Metsian Podcast, I'd like to also welcome author and proprietor of Faith and Flush, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, faithandfearinflushing.com, Mr. Greg Prince. Hello to you, sir. Good evening, and and we don't have much fear these days in flushing, do we? (laughs) <laughs> you, you know what? Take that with a grain of salt, man. We've been Mets fans for a long time, and uh, I don't know. I'm a little bit more pragmatic, so I, I'm not looking to jump off any ledges, but I'm not looking to open any champagne bottles just yet. Well, we, we are the champions of the, what is it now, 11-game season. Um, <laughs> but but in, instead of a trophy, we get to play a 12th game. So we'll Indeed. see what happens. Indeed. Uh, as I mentioned, this is our first podcast of the regular season. Uh, so before going any further, uh, I, I feel we'd be remiss if we didn't start this evening's discussion uh, with the unfortunate passing away of Rusty Staub. Uh You're talking to three guys, uh, three older Met fans here. So we remember uh, Rusty Staub very well. Uh, just such a major, major part of my childhood. Uh, so, Greg, why, why don't you uh, pick this up? Because this is a, a difficult subject for Met fans and, uh, you know, baseball as a whole. Rusty was an ambassador of baseball uh, among many things that he was. So, go ahead, Greg. Rusty Staub was a -a one-of-a-kind Met, a -a one-of-a-kind player from uh, all indications, a -a one-of-a-kind human being, and, you know, that that kind was superb, uh, you know, by every measure of the man. Uh, You know, just, just Remembering him as a Met, uh, the shock when he became a Met in April of 72 at a really strange moment. Uh, baseball was on strike, and unfortunately, you know, to, to, to understate it, uh, Gil Hodges had just passed away. And while we were trying to find our bearings, uh, we get the news that we have this multiple-time all-star slugger from Montreal coming to Shea in exchange for three pretty good young players, Ken Singleton, Mike Jorgensen, and Tim Foley, who would all go on to have you know really solid careers and then some. But at that moment, and honestly for the rest of the time, he was a Met. It didn't really matter because we got Rusty Staub, 
and that just upgraded everything about the lineup, about the defense, just about the depth. Of, I would go as far as to say about the clubhouse. And, um, you know, by, I think you know, Rusty's signature was the 1973 NLCS of, and to a great degree, the 1973 World Series, that whole 1973 run to glory, uh, which he was one of the principals to make possible, uh, you know, hitting like crazy and slamming into a wall with his shoulder, taking himself out, unfortunately, before the decisive fifth game. But, uh, you know, helping to push the Mets forward until they, uh, you know, won a pennant and then nearly the World Series. And just, uh, you know, to fast forward a few years from his his four-year stay in the 70s, after which he had been traded uh, in a <laughs> management-driven snit, uh, the, the less said, the better. Uh, as we, we try to stay positive. Uh, Rusty came back as a free agent at uh, the tender age of 37 and spent five more seasons as a Met, mostly as what we call the pinch hitter deluxe. Uh, not not only getting timely base hits for a team on the rise, but mentoring what became a world champion. And you know, you only had to listen to the remembrances of Keith Hernandez and Ron Darling and Mookie Wilson and Dwight Gooden, among others, to understand the impact he had on, on their careers and on the team that became the 1986 Mets. Uh, unfortunately, in the scheme of things, one year after, you know, Rusty hung him up. But he was a great hitter, a, a great influence, uh, a great part of the game, and that was only part of the story because this is a guy who dedicated himself after his retirement to so many charitable endeavors to his Catholic charities with his fund for the fire and police widows and children, which, you know, there's no, there's no understanding, you know, how much that raised and how much that meant to people. And, you know, the, the one silver lining when you have a passing like this is how many stories you hear about, you know, the, the the person in the news and, you know, the little you know, encounters people had, whether it was, you know, an autograph, whether it was Rusty's restaurant shaking his hand, whether it was just some some random meeting on the street, uh, you know, nobody came away saying, boy, I was disappointed, you know. Everybody came away saying, you know, I am so thrilled that I got to meet Rusty Staub. What a nice man. And, um, you know, we... We, we we were sad on opening day when we got the news a few hours before first pitch, and you know, obviously you know, everybody who considers themselves part of the Mets family, and I think all fans consider themselves uh, part of that brood, uh, you know, feel diminished. And um, you know, he you know, along with unfortunately Ed Charles, who uh, passed away a couple of weeks before spring training was over, uh, you know, the, the, those are two great losses, and, uh, you know, we keep them in our thoughts, and we were, were lucky as fans, uh, whether we saw them, uh, whether we only saw, in, in Rusty's case, the the second uh, part of his Met tenure, uh, you know, we were lucky to say that, you know, they were a part of our team, and, you know, they go a long way toward making us proud and making us who we are as fans. So, uh, like you guys, I'm uh, very sad to be missing Rusty. 
And, um, you know, condolences, obviously, to his family and to all who, who knew him and really to, uh, in, in a strange way, to all of us for, uh, for, for you know, missing a guy like that. Yeah, Rusty was a, a major reason or a, a major factor in me discovering other teams other than the Mets via radio back in the day after he got traded to the Tigers. I had a neighbor who, you know, taught me how to tune in out-of-town stations at night, and I would pick up Tiger games uh, just so I could continue listening to Rusty Staub. Uh I met him three times in my life, once as a child when he played for the Mets in the 70s and got his autograph. Uh, second time when I was still working uh, at a place previous to my present location, uh, there was a function, and I met him at his restaurant in Manhattan. And then the third time at Chase Stadium, I had my son with me, and uh, we were in the elevator, and lo and behold, Rusty Stop came walking in. So I'm glad my son uh, even got a chance to meet him and shake hands with him. Uh, Rich, uh, we were speaking before the show. Uh, you and I are in lockstep. He's among my all-time, you know, three great Mets. Take it away, Rich. Yeah, you know, uh, it's hard to add much to what Greg said you know, Rusty, uh, what I do remember is 1971 was the first season where I remember watching the Mets and actually sort of understanding the concept of the game. And what I remember about the 1971 season is when the Mets would play the Expos, you know, those 18 times that they did back then, um, I remember seeing this guy who just stood out. You know, because of the red hair, orangey red hair, and the, just being a great player – and saying to my dad, boy, I wish the Mets could get that guy. You know, that guy's amazing. You know, because you see him in these snippets, and he does these amazing things, hitting home runs, great throws from the outfield. And as Greg said, in early 1972, I, I mean, I remember, I, I, grade I was in, like, first grade or something, second grade, and Rusty Staub was a Met. And when they acquired him, it was like my dream had come true. I mean, this guy who was, you know, prolific to me, became a Met, and then it was just love, you know, in the 72, seven, as Greg mentioned, the 73 run to glory, um, right through his Met tenure, and the one thing I'll add is that, you know, at least to me, when Seaver was traded, I sort of understood it, you know, I sort of did, because he wanted more money, and he had signed a contract, but he wanted to renegotiate the contract because the scales had gone up. And when you think about the return the Mets got for Seaver, Zachary Flynn, Zachary, you know, was a rookie of the year, Flynn, and then they got the two two very good outfield prospects from the Reds. It's like, oh, I hated seeing Seaver go, but kind of get it. But when Rusty Staub was traded, think about that. I mean, they got Mickey Lolich. I'm looking at Mickey Lolich's stats. So in 74, he was 16 and 21. In 75, 12 and 18. So clearly, Rusty wasn't traded, you know, to make the team better. They got a 35-year-old Mickey Lolich who went 8-13 and for the Mets. It was like Greg said. Greg said it perfectly. It was a snit. It was an issue with the organization. He was sent away packing. The Mets got, a bunch, got crap in return. You know, as a player, not as a human being, but as a player, Mickey Lolich was no longer a good pitcher. And it was just to me like, this is my guy, and, and you sent them away for nothing, and you knew it. You knew you were getting nothing back, and it was just so infuriating. Uh, that, that trade bothered me a lot more than the Seaver trade. And then moving forward, when he came back, 
you know, I had that semi-smile on my face. His career is over, but this is cool. You know, we have, we have Rusty back. This is great. Well, lo and behold, he, he became the best pinch hitter basically in the history of baseball and, and just a great presence on the team. Then I'll, now I'll just move to some of the stuff just to add to what you guys were saying. Um, went to his restaurant, met him once. He was at a minor league game here in Connecticut talking, doing his charity thing, and um, – my daughter was very small at the time, like maybe I was holding her, so she was maybe three years old, and it was her turn to go up to him. I took the picture. I stayed in the background. He was gentlemanly. He, you know, teased her a little bit. You know, I like your hair, whatever it was. I made sure she told him that we're Mets fans, and he had a big smile on his face. I took the picture and went on my way. So, albeit about 90 seconds of interaction, as Greg and you, you said, you said, Mike, interactions with Rusty, Everybody says they're always positive. You think about the charity work. You think about um, the New York City Firefighters and Police Association, what he does there or did there. And I'll leave it with this. You know, we've talked on this podcast a lot about statues that should be outside City Field. We've talked Seaver. Yes, there should be one. We've talked Payson. Yes, there should be one. In my opinion, and I think I've said it on our podcast before, the first statue to me should be Rusty Stop for being a great Met on the field and, as you guys said, a great human being off. So that's my Rusty Stop statement. Here, here, here. Uh, I'm right there with you. Uh, you, you know, yes, you brought up Tom Seaver. There was indeed Tom Seaver, uh, the franchise. But Rusty Stop was our real first superstar. He was our first guy to ever crack uh, 100 RBIs in a season. You know, and uh, to me, it's just oh, just such a, a a tremendous figure in my childhood. Uh, we're talking about you know being a single digit midget. Uh, Greg, if you want to add in any last words on this subject before we move on, please do. Well, j- j- just to uh, pick up on Rich's point about the trade, and I really don't want to. Dump on Mickey Lolich. Mickey Lolich had a great career for the Tigers, and you know there are people in Detroit who love Mickey Lolich, but and and he did not pitch that badly for the Mets. He had, I believe, a 3.20 ERA, and he he was the reason I learned the the phrase snake bit from Bob Murphy because the Mets never seemed to score for him. Uh, you know, he was always the guy losing one nothing or two to one that year. Having said that, that trade was a punch to the gut. Um, you know, the 105 RBIs was such a revelation in 1975. You know, that they say about Saturday Night Live, like, what's your favorite season of Saturday Night Live? Well, it's the season you were 12 years old. Well, just to, to put that in perspective, um, the season I was 12 years old with the Mets was 1975, and the Mets couldn't have meant more to me than they did that summer, really, that spring, that summer, early fall. You know, we're talking about an 82 and 80 team that finished tied for third place. But I I just lived and died in a way that only a 12-year-old can with his team. And Rusty was such a huge part of that. And then December comes along, and I hear the Mets have traded Rusty Staub and Bill Laxton for Mickey Lolich and Billy Baldwin. And something kind of went out of me right there in advance of 1976. Uh, you know, it would be sort of, I mean, it would be hard to tell from the outside. I mean, I've, I've had years like that since where 
people who just assume that, you know, I'm always constantly thinking about the Mets, but, uh, you know, they made some trade that pissed me off. <laughs> I'm just sort of uh, mad at them. That's how I felt going into that year. And, and, and I read, you know, enough about he was a 10-5 and five guy and then Donald Grant wanted to trade him while he still could without having to get his approval. And I understood that, but I also understood that was not a baseball reason to do things. And I also understood that Rusty Staub was as popular a Met. And again, this is the age of Seaver and Kuzman and Matlack and Harrelson and Neon and Grody and Rusty St- and Dave Kingman, who had just come. And Rusty Staub was at least as popular as any of them, if not more so. And it was such a slap in the face to say, you know, we don't want him around anymore because, you know, he might, you know, be able to exercise a little pull with his contract. And remember, that was the year before free agency. It was the last time you could kind of screw over a player and screw over the fans. I mean, you know, they, they would find other ways, of course. Owners always will. So that that, that was, you know, that, that, that would just kind of suck the air out of my love for the Mets in, in a way. Uh, you know, go, going into 76 and certainly told us anything was possible. And, you know, as we learned on June 15, 1977, if I could just uh, add two more thoughts. One, the, the pinch hitting was just so phenomenal. And, you know, he thought he was coming back to play first base, and he did for a while, but they also got Kingman. So, and, and with Mookie Wilson developing into an outfielder and having to figure out what to do with Mazzilli, you know, somebody had to be the, the odd man out. And unfortunately, it was Rusty Stubb, who still had lots of lots of hits left in his, his bat. And, you know, he just, you know, whatever his feelings, he continued to produce and, you know, didn't bring the club down. And I, I, I will never forget the, uh, it was a Sunday doubleheader, if, if you can imagine such a thing. Not not from a rainout. They, they actually scheduled this, um, where Rusty got his eighth pinch hit in a row. Uh, obviously not all in one game, but uh, eight consecutive pinch hit at bats, his eighth at bat, uh, Shea went nuts. It was it was always an event when he would come up to bat as a pinch hitter. The people would be chanting his name, see him in the on-deck circle. No, I said at the beginning he was a singular figure. Nobody looks like Rusty Staub. Nobody carried himself like Rusty Staub. Nobody uh, adorned his, his hands with black golf gloves like Rusty Staub. So it was just always an occasion when you watched him, and and finally just, just to throw in uh, you know about, about my my crossing pass with him, and again it was nothing, <laughs> it was nothing one on one or anything. There were a couple of events I I went to, one an MLB alumni event, one a uh, the Mets 50th anniversary conference at Hofstra where where Rusty was the keynote speaker. At the MLB alumni event, he was sort of the chairman. And he just had this great way of going around the room, shaking hands, greeting everybody like he was the, you know, the father of the bride or something, making sure, I want to make sure all you people are having a good time. And, uh, you know, it was, it was just, you know, graceful and gracious. And, you know, the, the phrase, a class act, uh, just seems to personify him. So, um, you know, it, it was... It, it's funny, you know, we, we keep track and we often yearn for, for Mets to come back who, you know, we felt, felt got away, including Tom Seaver, guys like Lee Mazzilli, um, you know, guys like Jose Reyes, uh, Bobby Bonilla on, on, on the dark side. Um, you know, and sometimes it works out. Sometimes, you know, gee, maybe we should have just let, let the guy be in our memories because, you know, he came back and it was, you know, you can't, you, you can't go back to the Greens, Billy Joel said. Um 
But with Rusty Staub, he was the most successful two-time Met, which you know may, may just sound like you know an asterisk type of deal. But if you think about it, two generations of Mets fans got to grow up with him. So you know, guys of, of our ilk remember him coming over from the Expos and you know leading us to the '73 series and driving in those hundred plus runs. And then you got people, you know, not only do we get to enjoy his, his second Met career, but there are people who grew up in the 80s who remember him as that pinch hitter and the guy who hit the home run after 40 years of age and you know, the guy who played right field and left field and right field back and forth that day in 1985 when uh, Davey didn't have anybody else. And he makes that uh, that incredible catch when, you know, he could barely move. Um, but, you know, again, on top of everything, we say, you know, you always – you, you always feel like you haven't said enough, and we, we've probably said plenty, and we probably haven't said enough. But you know, it was just a great baseball career, a great baseball life, a great life in general. And uh, you know, I, I appreciate that we, we have the chance to uh, to remember him tonight. But you're right; we can't say enough about Rusty Staub in the colorful 56-year history of the Mets. Uh, Rusty Staub stands out as a titan. I think I I speak for all three of us. Uh, in 83, Rusty Staub and Tom Seaver were rejoined on the New York Mets, and uh, Tom Seaver infamously said to Keith Hernandez upon his revival, arrival, welcome to the Stems. So let's talk Stems baseball, guys. Uh, you know, while we can actually say we're in a place we've never been before, the team is 10-1 to start the season. It's the, we're the first team to reach 10 wins, uh, being that we're on the East Coast, technicality there, uh, and it's the best start in franchise history. Uh, I'm happy. How about you, uh, Rich? I, I'm happy to say the least. You know, it's a pinch me moment. Um, and, you know, being a lifelong Met fan like you guys, my head goes to, so how's it going to feel when they do lose two or three in a row? Because this is so much fun. And, you know, my head goes to the negative place. But but living in the moment now, you know, when you reflect upon the 10-1 and one start, the positives are many. I'll just isolate one or two. They're winning without great starting pitching. The starting pitching, the ERA is about 3-4-ish. Um, and they're winning on the strength of a really good bullpen that everybody said would be an Achilles heel. So that's great because you know the starting pitching will, be, will probably be better. You're, you're very confident about that. And that could only point to, to better things. Um, they're playing good baseball. Um, they're taking the extra base. Todd Frazier two nights ago when he went second to third on the fly ball, he knew that Dietrich is not an outfielder and he caught it going backwards. And even though it was left field, he went second to third. And you love to see that a team that doesn't have a lot of team speed, but runs the bases. Well, Um, another enormously positive thing, contributions from everyone. You know, he reminds you of Davey Johnson in that way. Mickey does you know, getting everybody in the game. And uh, and then I'll leave it at this one. The manager not only brings a new energy, but he has the Midas touch for the moment. You know, a lot of people said, oh, why are you leaving Gonzalez in against the lefty, Conforto and Gonzalez? Use Reyes from the right side, all this kind of thing. Well, it works. And it seems like everything this man touches is working. Seth Lugo, Gesellman in the bullpen, lights out. Um, Wheeler last night. So, the, the positives and the reasons for winning are diverse, which is good, like your portfolio. You want to have it as diversified as possible. Um, you know that, that tough days are coming because they do for every team. But, 
you start to get the feeling that because they win in different ways, because of the new aura around the team, that they'll survive those tough times. And, and this may be the beginning of something special. So it feels great. Uh, you sound like a happy camper. Uh, Gray, I'll put it to you this way. Uh, the Mets have outdone the 1985 team. They've outdone the 2016 with this start. They've had four series played thus far. Uh, two wins against St. Louis and Philadelphia, and two sweeps against Washington and Miami. How does that sit with you? I am not returning it. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think we, we learned, you know, it seems longer somehow, three years ago, how important a good start is to a team with postseason ambitions, which I guess every team has postseason ambitions in April. Uh, remember that 2015 team you know, gets off to that 13-3 and three start, wins 11 in a row, including 10 at home, and when those inevitable tough times came along, uh, when we were all you know, beside ourselves with the lack of offense and the lack of major league talent, we never fell out of the race because, hey, we went 13-3 we went and three in the first part of the season. Well, I don't know what's ahead for the next 151 games, but we've got 10 out of 11 wins, uh, 10 out of 11 games won in the bank. And, you know, to a quote Cole Porter, no, they can't take that away from us. Um, you know, I've begun doing something this year, and it has nothing to do with their winning the way they have been winning. It was something I started on day one of the season just for my own, oh, I don't know, but let's call it my own Mets retentiveness that I wanted to kind of keep track of all the little details in the course of the season for whatever purpose. So after every game, I write down, you know, highlights, things that were said, topics of the day, you know, trends, whatever, just to give you an idea. And this, you know, without any artifice to what I wrote down. And then again, this wasn't for publication. These are just my notes. Mets off, this is after last night's game. Mets off to best 11 game start in their history. Mets win eighth in a row. Mets lead NL East by three and a half over Atlanta, four over Philadelphia, four and a half over fourth place Washington. Mets sweep six game road trip. First time since 1991 they went undefeated on a road trip of at least six games. Mets have best record in baseball, and then it goes on to you know more individual stuff and whatnot. And it's like, I, and I was I was typing this in. I was thinking, isn't there something I can say that you know doesn't make it sound like you know I'm, I'm making this up? <laughs> but, but this has actually happened. This is at least for eleven games. You know, this is the world we've been living in, and you know, it, it the, the strange part is. It doesn't quite seem crazy. Um, you know, we're, we're not so far removed from two playoff teams that, you know, it's like you know, in 2015, when I just alluded to, that kind of came out of the blue, even though we knew they were you know, supposed to be pretty good because they've been so sub-500 for so long. Uh, last year was horrible, but, you know, it, it doesn't seem crazy that, that players that we saw go to the playoffs and then fight for a wild card in 2016 and go to a World Series in 2015, some of, some cases, you know, would be able to do this. But I don't think any of us saw this coming necessarily. Yet, you know, they don't strike you as a, gee, they sure are lucky. They sure are getting the bounces. Uh, they, they sure are having fluky come from behind ninth inning 
crazy rallies. They go, they're playing aggressively, as you said, and you know they're they're playing confidently. And you know maybe that that will be their undoing at some point. They'll be too aggressive, too confident, too cocky, whatever you know the, the phrase you would use. But right now, you know they're playing a win, and uh, you know it's elemental, it's basic as that sounds. It's you know it's paying off, and that they have the talent to do it. They have guys who, quite frankly, I didn't necessarily think were going to be big contributors, who right now are are getting big hits or are making big pitches. And the manager, who was kind of a blank slate, is is filling it in very successfully. And, you know, I couldn't possibly tell you anything I would change about what Mickey Calloway has done to this point. And really, uh, at 10-1, and 1, I wouldn't change a, a thing about anything this team has done. I'm not going to be uh, complaining that it's not 11-0. Let's put it that way. So, all, all's well. I don't know if it'll end well, but all's well. All right, you brought up two very beautiful points. Uh, we're we're going to demystify the success when we get into individual players. But you brought up 215. Uh, and, yeah, we did indeed get up to a great start. We got up to a 15-8 and eight start that April. And then we tailspins. We went 13-15 and 15 in May, 12-15 and 15 in June. And then just in July, they went a game above 500 with a 13-12 and 12 record. You know, and I've been saying this for a long time. I don't know where I picked it up from. I didn't make it up. I, uh, I admit I picked it up from somewhere, and I live by it. You can't win pennants in April, but you certainly can lose them. You know, and, and what this start does is gives them a wonderful cushion and, and, and margin for error. Uh, you know, that start back in 2015 allowed them to approach that trade deadline with a, a forward-looking perspective. Uh, and, and without, you know, staying in 2015, we'll stick in the present. You also brought up Mickey Calloway. And, Rich, I posed the question to you before the show. For a long time, we had been saying that, you know, perhaps the game has passed Terry Collins by. And now it's Mickey Calloway and his style and his maneuvering. Uh, has, you know, can we look back now and honestly say, yeah, the game did, in fact, pass Terry Collins by? And let's transition this conversation over to Mickey Calloway, his style, and apparently his mind is touched for the moment. Well, you know, to Terry's credit, he did, there's no denying the fact he took them to a World Series in, in 2015. We all know that. But now that he's gone, I, there's something so intangible, it's almost tangible about, about what's changed. You know, the, the approach of the team seems different. Um, the energy level seems different. It seems, yes, I, I recognize that Mickey is significantly younger than Terry, but there seems more of like a youthful enthusiasm about the team. You know, as Greg said, they're playing every night. They're, they're doing little things right. Terry used to say the words, you know, we're going to play the game the right way. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. But it didn't always happen. And in the very, very small sample size of Mickey Calloway, it does seem like they're doing the things that they need to do, that they're playing the game the right way. And when you, you couple that with, I'm not sure if it's Mickey's, you know, slightly more analytical approach, the change in the coaching staff, whatever it is, but as you start to de- decipher a nine, and a, uh, I'm sorry, a nine game over 500, 10 and one start. And, you know, you can look at, Players, is there any player that that's really really off to a great start? I, I don't see it. I mean, Michael Conforto is doing really well, but it's not one or two players carrying the team. 
it's balanced. And what that tells me is the man at the helm knows how to use the resources he has appropriately. And, yes, people will say they lean on the bullpen a little too much. That will come back and bite them in, in the backside. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But, um, but you know, when you look at the Mickey Calloway factor, although it's an 11-game sample size, there's something there. There, there's something has changed with this team that, like I said earlier, it's partially tangible, running the bases better, playing aggressively, partially intangible. When you listen to them talk, you listen to the manager talk, you just get a feeling of, of renewal. You get a feeling of, of optimism that simply wasn't there when you were you know, waiting for Terry to go off on one of his rampages. Um, I don't know. it's hard for me to quantify it. It's hard for me to exactly put a finger on it, but I will tell you I'm convinced that the Mickey Calloway factor is definitely present in the resurgence we're seeing. Greg, I think the statistic, if I'm correct, Mickey Calloway is one of four managers to start their careers nine and one in history. And, and all of a sudden we have two managers performing that feat in the same season, Alex Cora being the other. Uh, as Rich alluded to, there's just absurdly aggressive base running happening before our eyes. Uh, third base coach Glenn Sherlock doesn't seem to have a stop sign. I think it's all wonderful. I'm, I'm not saying I, I disapprove because I don't. Uh, Dave Island. He had a particularly rough approach and handling of, of, of Zach Wheeler and Hansel Robles before they got assigned to Las Vegas when, when they broke camp, uh, and Mickey Calloway's style in general. Uh, and I'll pose the same question to you. Did the game pass Terry Collins' by, and is Mickey Calloway's style and maneuvering evidence of that? Well, I don't, I don't know if the, the game passed Terry Collins by. I mean, he had seven years, uh, my best observation, I suppose, is that a new voice, a fresh voice, was probably necessary. And from there, uh, you know, the interview process produced this guy who had never managed before, who was a pitching coach, which is still considered kind of an oddball career trajectory to managing. But he, he did his homework. He impressed the right people. And you know, beyond that, which is what he did to get the job, you know, he, he sold whatever he had to sell in spring training or probably, you know, from the moment he was hired and getting on the phone with these these guys he was going to manage, you know, <laughs> flying out to visit them. And, you know, I, I get the feeling a lot of baseball is about buy-in and belief and success kind of beginning more success, shall we say. And, you know, once whatever it is that, that Callaway was telling them kind of sunk in and, sort of began to make sense to these guys, and you had, shall we say, his his emissaries within the clubhouse, the veterans who, you know, pushed the word and, um, you know, made the younger players believe, uh, you know, whatever you think of, uh, you know, silly stuff like, you know, the salt and pepper grinders, things like that. Uh, You know, players really respond to that when it has something to do with winning. And, it all came together. I don't know how much of this is you know, directly attributable to the genius of Mickey Calloway, but there's really 
nothing that we can say he's done wrong. I mean, you know, hey, he may have sent up a pinch hitter who struck out, but, you know, the, the overall effect is so positive, and it, it does feel clouds parting, you know, breath of fresh air, all, whatever cliches you, you care to commit. Um, you know, you, you just wonder if Callaway, I don't remember who, who else he interviewed with, if anybody, you know, somebody impressed somebody on the right day. And maybe this is just, you know, the 10 and 1, the 10 wins in 11 games that might have, might come for Gabe Kapler or might come for Aaron Boone down the road when Alex Cora's team and Mickey Callaway's teams are struggling. And then perceptions will change again. I'm not saying, you know, that all of that is going to happen. But, you know, so some luck is involved here, most likely. I mean, it's not like, oh, we, we found the guy who, who wins, you know, at a 900-plus clip. Aren't we lucky? And things are just going to be great from here on out. But, you know, it, there, I, again, I don't, want, I don't want to pick on Terry Collins. He, he, he won us a pennant, and, you know, he got us to the playoffs two years in a row, and he, he survived seven years, which was just so impressive. But, you know, I'll, I'll – I'll, put a bow on it with this. When when they hired Mickey Calloway, when they had the press conference for him last fall, I remember, you know, see, seeing him in, in front of that uh, wall of Met logos and whatever, you know, whatever else, City Field logos, they hold all their press events in front of. And I said, it's weird seeing Mickey Calloway in Terry Collins' room. Because <laughs> to me, that's Terry Collins' room, having watched him take, you know, and meet the press so many times there. I have not had that sensation at all from day one. Like, this is Mickey Calloway's room now. This is Mickey Calloway's team. And, you know, to to whatever extent our fate as fans can be considered attached to uh, one man's mind, uh, it's this guy. And I'm I'm happy to trust him uh, and and see what happens. I find it particularly interesting, this double-barrel approach with Mickey Calloway, a former pitching coach, and Dave Island. Uh, that being said, let's transition to some of this pitching. Uh, I'll throw some stats out there, and you guys can take things and do with, with them what you will. Uh, opponents are batting 203 against Mets pitching. Uh, their overall ERA is 2.63 after 10 games, which is number one in major league. Starting pitches are accounting for 56% of all innings pitched. The Mets' bullpen is accounting for 44% of all innings pitched. Uh, I, I, I know it's early in the season, and perhaps these starters still need to get uh, stretched out a bit more. Uh, but to me, that's somewhat of a disturbing number only because it's not sustainable. Uh, so, you know, o- only the future is going to prove prove that out. Now, starters ERA, Rich, you were spot on. Starters ERA is 3.44. Uh, and the bullpen's ERA is a stellar 1.57. So having throwing all those things out there. Starting pitchers. Uh, general observations, anything that stands out. Syndergaard, DeGrom, Harvey, Max, uh, Wheeler made his debut after a good start in Las Vegas, uh, and he performed well. And I'll just throw this out there as well. Seth Lugo 
is pitching with a partially torn UCL. Okay. Uh, Rich, fire away. Well, you know, when you hear the pitching statistics, the first thing that comes to my mind is they're a bit inverted from what your expectations would have been. You know, you would have thought that your two best starters would be Syndergaard and DeGuard. Syndergaard and DeGrom. And not that those guys have been bad, but they will be better. You think about Harvey has looked, you know, well, he looked very good in his first start, not quite as good in his second start. Wheeler looked lights out. Uh, Matt's had a bad start and a good start. So it, it's a bit inverted. You know, you're, you're get, your better performances, the two best pitching performances they've had this year are Harvey against Phillies and Wheeler last night not Cindergram and DeGuard. So I keep saying that. Cindergard and DeGrom. So they're interchangeable. Yeah, I I guess they are, at least in my mind. So so it's a bit odd, you know, and, and it's actually encouraging, right? Because you're saying to yourself, Wow, we were hoping for something good out of Harvey, hoping for something good out of Wheeler. That worked out. We know those other two guys are going to be okay. So this is great. And I and I do take solace in that. I, I feel like the better days are coming from the starting pitching. The bullpen, everybody said, oh, my goodness, the bullpen will be bad. Familia has been effective. He hasn't been lights out. He's given us a few palpitations, but he's been effective. Um, Seth Lugo and his spin rate lights out. Gaselman, what fountain of youth is he drinking from? I mean, oh, here's a guy who looked like he had borderline major league stuff last year at times. And he's just devastating. I mean, is it that he's a reliever? That's what he should be? Who knows? So the bullpen was expected to be an Achilles heel and is now the strength. Again, once again, inverted. So I'll take the inversion as a positive and say I think that the surprising part can sustain itself. The part where you're surprised on the back end, where you know guys aren't as good as you thought they would be, I think that will turn around. So I, I take a lot of a lot of um, – positivity out of that the other thing i will say mike to your point about the bullpen throwing a lot of innings that is true and if there is one concern at this point in this 10 and 1 bliss it's the fact that the bullpen these guys are throwing a lot of innings but with mickey calloway to our previous conversation you get the feeling that calloway and island have a plan like in other words they're stretching these guys out five innings this time and that it's methodical. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But I just get the feeling that it's not going to be like, oh, my God, these guys' arms are falling off on April 30th. I get the feeling that they'll work this out. I have confidence that they'll get these starters to a point where these guys could go seven innings, and they'll also use the bullpen in a way that we don't see what happened in the Terry Collins and Warden era, which is, Call, send this guy down, call that guy up, this guy's arm shot, call that guy up, can't use that guy tonight because he's pitched six days in a row. I just think they'll manage that situation well enough to a point where it won't be a big concern. I'm glad you brought up Dan Warden. I will only say this before handing uh, this conversation off to you, Greg. Dan Warden used to call all pitches. That's all I'll say. Uh, Greg, take it up. Um, you know, I would love to see six innings out of guys who've been going five and seven innings out of guys who've been going six. But I think that will come, but I think that'll also come kind of intertwined with, you know, this regime's philosophy 
which is, you know, we, we need to get out of innings and we need to, uh, you know, limit rallies when we need to limit them. I, I like that we've seen A.J. Ramos not saved for the eighth inning. Uh, not, not so much that I'm dying to see A.J. Ramos in the game as soon as possible, but I like the idea that we're being flexible here. It's not like, okay, here you're the setup man, ergo you pitch in the eighth, because what what good is that if the game is getting away in the sixth? I was curious, uh, the most recent win of many for the Mets, when Gazelman had his you know, most dominant outing, three consecutive strikeouts in the eighth inning, and they did not bring him out for the ninth. And I thought, like, well, you know, am I just drinking the Kool-Aid here that this is the right thing to do because, you know, you want to bring in your lefty Blevins to, to face the right guy? Um, or could it be just left Gazelman in there? Well, you know, do you really want to wear out Gazelman, who's in a new role? And I, I think Collins, you know, you know, Collins and I suppose Worth and did seem to suffer from new toy tendency. If they had a new toy, they just wanted to use them every night for a week. And that inevitably led you down the path to the disabled list. Uh, you know, again, you know, Callaway comes from a culture in Cleveland where they were not afraid to use guys out of their comfort zones or what we perceived as their comfort zone. So I think we're, we're seeing that work here. I, I think we were kind of warned in the off season that we were not going to be, you know, outside of Syndergaard and DeGrom necessarily looking at guys who are going to be left in to face lineups a third time around if it doesn't make sense. So, you know, there there is some yin and yang here, some some stretching out, yet some, you know, different expectations. Um, again, you, you can argue with any of it because it's been working, and you know it is it is a deep bullpen. I mean, you know, unfortunately, it's a short bench, which which hasn't bitten them by any means. But you know, I think we also heard toward the end of spring training the idea that there was going to be a kind of a a proactive Las Vegas shuttle, that not hopefully not out of desperation, but with the idea being that you know you are going to go through some guys, and you know we're we're going to be getting some guys ready. I think we saw that. You know, he was one night and he only warmed up in the bullpen and he was, you know, back on the plane. But you know, the, bringing up Corey Oswalt and not being afraid to use him in a big situation, bringing back Hansel Robles when you had to. Remember, we we barely seen Anthony Sforzak, who's supposed to be a big piece of this. And Hansel Robles, who we've all cringed from. And, you know, who's, who's had a, you know, given a, gave up one very long home run that, uh, that comes to mind off Bryce Harper. It's bad. But uh, otherwise has been it's not exactly a revelation, and he's been very effective and had some really good innings. So, you know, the, these are, are guys finding new roles. And, again, I, I think it goes back to everybody kind of buying in. And, you know, whatever it was that, that uh, Callaway and Dave Island are selling, it's, it's coming across. So, you know, we, again, we, I, I think I, I want to have it always by saying it's early in terms of everything that's happened is great and we'll keep going, and everything that hasn't, hap- hasn't happened the way we wanted to, you know, that, that'll fix itself by the 15th game. But, um, you know, you, get, you think back to last year at this time, they, they made a, a great deal of fuss over Zach Wheeler being the one to go seven innings or enter a seventh inning. Robert Gazelman was the first pitcher last year in the middle of April to make it to a seventh inning. So the same thing was happening last year, and, you know, it didn't necessarily uh, 
tell you anything that, you know, Gazelman was going to be the workhorse of the staff. So, you know, traditionally, you don't really want guys' arms being used a lot in April when it's freezing. So I'm not too worried about that. And I, I certainly think with the, the two guys who we consider the aces, you know, I think seventh innings will take care of themselves. And uh, as far as the other guys, you know, I, I have to admit, I'm, I'm still a little bit on a start-by-start basis uh, in, in the, when it comes to Harvey, when it comes to Matt, and certainly Wheeler, who had a great start. He's only had one start. was not planned to be here. And, of course, you know, J- Jason Vargas uh, hopefully waiting in the wings. So um, it's, they're, they're, again, like everything else, there's nothing discouraging here. Rich, you brought up, correctly so, this has been a group effort. Callaway has everyone involved. Greg, you brought up Corey Oswald, uh, which, you know, leads me to believe that I think we're witnessing a reinvention of the 40-man roster. I think Mickey Callaway and, and all these new wave thinkers that are trying to recreate or reinvent the wheel, so to say, I think they're going to start manipulating the 40-man roster like we haven't seen before. Uh, very interesting call-up of Corey Oswald and Wheeler. That was a little bit unexpected. We thought Wheeler was going to... Uh, have a couple of starts at Las Vegas. Nimmo goes down. I guess what I'm leading up to, this is my question. Uh, Greg, is is this going to be Mickey Calloway's way of supplying and supporting this all-out bullpen blitz by constantly shifting people back and forth just for the sake of keeping people fresh and not overtaxing them? I think if that's what it's going to take, that that might be the way he does it. Uh, you know, he hasn't been shy about shifting people around in, in games other than, well, hell, even Familia, you know, has come in in the eighth inning and st- stayed for the ninth. Um, as, as far as employing as many relievers as you have to, even if they have to get on a plane coming east and somebody else, and it was it was tough to watch Brandon Nimmo go because he was you know a talented major league outfielder who you know deserves to be on on this major league roster if at all possible. But you know the the judgment was made that you know we need to fortify the bullpen. We can get by with one less bat for a few days, so we're going to do it. I, I think uh, what what you suggest about this kind of being a new approach or certainly one we're not used to seems to be in the offing and you know when they're winning I think it's going to be fine when they're not winning as much you know then it will be interesting to hear is it uh, nobody here will we be in nobody here knows what their role is nobody knows if they're going to be here from one week to the next or will it be uh, yeah all right you know he he told me what what I was going to be doing and I believe him and you know they say I'll be back by uh, you know July um, fine, I'll, I'll go down to Las Vegas and work on some things, <laughs> or you know, whatever it is they wind up saying. Um, no, this, this is—it's interesting. I, I think when—and I—I I don't mean to project here, but I, I think when, when fans who've been around a while, as, as each of us has been, you know, hear about kind of you know Joe Madden types. Let's just say I'm not necessarily saying Callaway is that kind of guy, 
But, you know, new school managers, whatever you want to call them, I think there's a tendency to scoff a little bit from a distance because it all sounds more, you know, flashy, complex, whatever, than it needs to be. But then, like, you're seeing it up close. You're seeing a manager be innovative and trying different things, and you're seeing it work, and it's actually exciting to, 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 to have a, a ringside seat for. Um, we'll see how exciting it is, you know, if, if things take a turn. But, you know, right, right now, it's, you know, they say you know, no, nobody pays to go watch the manager manage. And, you know, I, I think that's true. But I, I think here it's almost a value-added thing, see, seeing how, uh, how what Callaway does and uh, how he does it. <laughs> uh, the good thing we're getting out of Las Vegas, if this is indeed the case, and we're going to Syracuse, because yeah. uh, uh, the, the flights, you know, it really haven't been an impediment over the last couple of years, but if this is going to be the case, yeah, it could very well be. Rich, uh, gosh, what was I going to say? Basically the same question. Are they reinventing how they're going to go about the 40-man roster. Is this the way they're going to supply and support in all our bullpen blitz? It may be, Mike. You know, it may be that that's the approach, and why not? You know, you have a 40-man roster for a reason. Um, and if they need to dip down there, which they will, uh, of course, there will be an injury here or there. And, and whether it's a simple fatigue in the bullpen, which, you know, we've already seen when they brought up Oswalt, um, it's – it's the way of the world now. You know, it's not the old days of the 25-man roster and somebody only was called up when someone else was hurt. You know, now it's a question of roster management. And, you know, sending a guy out for 15 days or whatever it might be, whatever the minimum stint is, minus an injury, sending a guy out so you could bring up a fresh arm. And and why not? You know, it's playing within the rules. If um, If it takes 40 men to win, then so be it. Why not use them that way, especially around relievers? You know, and, and as you guys were saying, it's one thing to bring somebody up to have an emergency, but, but what I like about Mickey is he's not afraid to use these guys. You know, Oswalt was up and, you know, ready in a, in a big situation. He's used Jacob Rehm in, in close situations. And, and uh, here's a guy who, you know, obviously very, very much a rookie, very green, um, and, yes, it's not the best example to point to Sunday night's game because it was a 12-inning game and, and they were running low on pitching, but they didn't blink an eye about throwing Ram out there and having him having him close it, and he, and he pitched a one, two, three innings. So it, it's partially using all 40 guys or, or having them available. The other part that I think Mickey is so far doing well, maybe what we're hoping for, is that not only does he use these 40 players – but he also uses them effectively. And and I'm really thinking that with – and it's confidence. You know, you have confidence in Mickey and Island that they'll use these guys effectively. They're not afraid to use them. They, they know enough about them to know what spots will be appropriate. And to me, that's a big part of the start, you know, is that I just have faith in the people making the calls right now, which um, – you know, not sure I did before. So, so yeah, maybe it is a 40-man effort, and it's not just having the guys, it's using them correctly. Uh, you said a trigger word, Rich. Injury, Travis Darno. Let me bring up this little list. Uh, give me a second here. And uh, we're going to transition to positional players here. Let me just bring up this little list of uh, his injury past. In the minor league, 2010. Herniated disc, lower back, 2012, torn posterior cruciate ligament, left knee, 
As a major leaguer, 2013, fractured left foot, 2014, concussion, bone chip, right elbow, 2015, fractured right hand, hyperextended left elbow, 2016, right rotator cuff strain, last season, right wrist. This season, potential Tommy John surgery. Oh, boy. Rich. You know, with Darno, a lot of them are freak injuries. Like, remember the the play at the plate in Atlanta in 2015 when he got hurt? Um, and, and a lot of them are – some people say you get injured because you play really hard, or I'm not sure he plays hard on anybody else. He plays a difficult position. It's just sometimes you're the victim of bad luck. You know, when you look at Darno, you don't see someone who's not in good shape you don't see someone abusing his body by doing 1,000-pound squats and then pulling a hamstring. You know, you don't see that. You see somebody who, on the surface, seems to do the right things. Some people are unlucky, and maybe that's part of it with Darno. But if he has Tommy John surgery, the one thing I will say is he probably has played his last game as Met. Um, I, I think the organization was giving him one last shot this year, and you hate to, hate to see someone lose a job over an injury. But maybe enough's enough with this guy, and maybe it is time to move on. So I feel sorry for Darno because he certainly seems like a guy who tries to do the right thing and you know, all of that, and he seems like a likable fellow. And uh, you know, he there are some glimpses with him. You know, he certainly has power for a guy who's not all that big. He has some good power. Um, his game, apart from injuries, has kind of been stagnant. He hasn't really improved defensively. Um, you get the feeling that the pitchers say the right things, but they don't like pitching to him. At least most of them don't. Uh, at least you get that feeling. I could be wrong. but um, So Darno's a guy who – hasn't it been really frustrating, though? Remember, he was supposed to be the centerpiece of the Dickey trade. And a catcher with power. I mean, well, when you, you don't see that too often. You know, Piazza Carter, you don't see it every day. He's going to – young guy, catcher with power and all this, and he comes up and he gives you a little taste. He hits a few home runs. Wow. But then he doesn't really seem to progress, and he gets hurt all the time. So I feel sorry for him, but I do think it might be time to move on. Oh, boy. Uh, Greg, you heard the injury injury history. I don't have to tell you. You know it well. Uh, I put together his three best seasons offensively. And the best he can do is average 324 at-bats. 18 doubles, 13 home runs, and 46 RBIs. That's at his best when he's on the field. Uh, take it away. Yeah, you know, I, I fear we are uh, talking about a guy who whose best days never were. Um, you know, important contributor to a World Series team, hit a big home run in that NLCS. You know, was was part of that surge to first place and, you know, putting Washington away and all of that. But, you know, it always felt like there was supposed to be more, you know, dating back to his status as a top prospect in other organizations to his role as centerpiece of the Dickey deal, certainly as important as Syndergaard was going to be. No, I don't know, you know what what to do about a guy who you know, can't stay on the field. Remember when I uh, heard last year, uh, you know, when the Mets were kind of 
hyping their their terrific new catching tandem, uh, who was basically the same two guys they've had for a few years. Uh, and they said, oh, you know, he last year he he played in his uh, career high. I think it was 114 games. Like it's not a very large career high. Um, and again, you know, I don't I don't know what injury prone is. I, I remember writing something during one of his stretches on the disabled list, and it kind of reminded me of the early years of Phil Simms when he was the Giants quarterback because he could never get through a full season. And he got tagged with the injury-prone label. Well, all, all Phil Simms could do was, you know, one year not get injured. <laughs> and that started happening. And, you know, he went on to a great career and won a Super Bowl and, you know, became this icon. And I just kind of, my, my thought was, you know, all Darno has to do is not have freak injuries or whatever goes wrong in his training happen to him. And unfortunately that hasn't happened. You know, hearing this the other day, you know, you, that there's your storm cloud, I suppose, whatever, you know, you, you think of him, you know, whatever, whatever it was that, uh, you know, Travin Darlecki or whatever we wanted to call them uh, <laughs> was doing um, was working. Um, you know, if you remember, a couple of years ago, there was some talk. Uh, you know, this this was before that emergency start at third base last year, uh, where he was shifting back from second and third, second and third all night. But there was talk. Oh, you know, maybe they'll try Darno in the outfield to get his bat in there. It'll uh, it'll keep him fresher. It'll keep him healthier. I mean, nothing ever came of that. But it, it seems like the, the the surest way to make sure a Met never plays the outfield is to say he will play the outfield because that's at least three current Mets I can think of who uh, have been hyped in spring training one year or another. as He's going to get some time in the outfield. It never happens. But anyway, um, so I, I got the sense that they were never really sold on him as a catcher. And I, I think, uh, you know, you're right about, you know, the there doesn't seem to be a great simpatico between him and his pitching staff. I think there is a, a lot more comfort with Ploiecki. I think you know, there was certainly more comfort with Rene Rivera. I don't know what, what it's going to be with Tomas Nito or Jose Lobaton or, for that matter, you know, Catcher X, who I have to believe is going to be on on Sandy Alderson's radar, whoever Catcher X is. Uh, you know, like you guys, I like Darno, and he strikes me as a really earnest guy and a guy who wants to win. And, you know, he has one. I, I shouldn't make this comparison because he went to a World Series. And uh, there's a lot of players who can't say that, but uh, kind of reminds me, different demeanor, but kind of reminds me of John Stearns in a way. That, you know, John Stearns put in a lot of time, and there was always something kind of getting in his way. And, you know, at at the moment that the Mets were blossoming to the contender you always wished they were, you know, John Stearns was injured for the better part of two years and finally had to hang him up. And, you know, there, there, there is, I, I kind of sent him, like I said, I, I don't think Travis Darno is the kind of guy who's going to tackle a mascot or anything like that, that we remember John Stearns for doing. But, um, you know, there, there, there is a, I, I, I really feel a commitment to, uh, you know, to catching and, you know, to wanting to be better and to wanting to lift his team kind of thing, kind of vibe I picked up from Stearns and the same one I get from Darno. And it's just a shame that, you know, barring miracle recoveries and I don't know, invitations to spring training as a non-roster player or something, uh, that's not going to happen here. I 
you know, again, I don't want to get too too far ahead of the script, but um, you know, I hope it works out for him. I have, first and foremost, I, I hope he feels good, and I hope he can continue his profession and uh, every, everything else. Have, you kind of want to start a new paragraph and say, okay, what does this mean to the Mets now? Greg, name that pitcher. John Stearns came darting out of the dugout when somebody came up high and tight to Mike Jorgensen after his previous history getting hit in the head. Bill Gullickson. You're amazing. Amazing. Was, I think he was, a, if he wasn't a rookie, he was pretty you know, new. And Gullickson in a heated doubleheader, you know, just goes, goes to show how... Uh, and in any given year, you know, the Mets were the the, uh, the young upstarts. The magic is back summer that I probably talked about ad infinitum on this show and its predecessor. And uh, the Expos, who were the powerhouse of the Division A franchise that no longer exists as such. And, yeah, he uh, threw it Mike Jorgensen, who was, uh, you know, had, had suffered from uh, being hit by a pitch previously in his career. And John Stearns wasn't having any of it. And Not uh, I don't know that we... I don't, I don't know that we would see Darno doing exactly what Stearns did. I mean, different temperaments, but I, I don't know. They, they just kind of reminded me of each other. I guess also, you know, I remember Stearns coming up. We were talking about 1975 at the outset with Rusty. Uh, Stearns was a rookie that year. He was sort of the, you know, the, the prospect. I mean, De- Del Unser was the main get for Tug McGraw. Speaking of trades that uh, that, that regime made, and. But, you know, the idea was that John Stearns will succeed Jerry Grody. And it took a while for, for John Stearns to become an everyday catcher and an effective everyday catcher and a catcher who could hit and, you know, a catcher who could, you know, coach a pitching staff that sadly was, was, was not, there was not a lot to work with. And, you know, I kind of thought that, you know, that would be, you know, the trajectory Darno would follow. And I, I have to... I remember a couple of years ago, a, a guy who runs a blog, uh, I think it's for the Cardinals, uh, you know, doing one of those let's talk to some Mets bloggers season preview type of deal, and he asked me to make a prediction. And I said, you know, backing up Yadier Molina or Buster Posey, if I probably said, because I can't stand Yadier Molina, <laughs> backing up Buster Posey also again this year will be Travis Darno. And said Darno is, you know, basically out for the next four months. So, um you know, I I think uh, we we saw a lot in him. I certainly did, and uh, you know, again, we're we're talking about a guy who I don't think is 30 years old yet. So maybe we should hold hold, hold off on the last rights for his career. But uh, you know, it's a blow to him and well, a blow to the Nets because they certainly weren't expecting this. Uh, you're right. He's either 29 or 30, one or the other. Uh, last word on Darno. It's unfortunate. I heard Rick DiPietro say on ESPN Radio recently. An athlete's best ability is his availability. And unfortunately for Darno, he's only appeared in 56% of his games over the last four seasons. He's only appeared in 362 out of a possible 648 games. Unbelievable. All right, let's continue around the horn. And uh, as we mention these players and go through them, you know, by all means, bring up where they've been batting in the lineup because through 10 games or, or 11 games, what it is, uh, it seems like Mickey Callaway's put out a different lineup every night, you know, in one varying form or or another. So first base, all I can say is uh, Adrian Gonzalez. You know, he suffered a bad back last season. Uh, with a good back, you know, in, in health, 
He's a professional hitter. That's all I can say. Rich, take it away. Yeah, you know, I had no problem with bringing Gonzalez on because somebody has to really explain to me the downside of doing that. Okay, Dom Smith. If Dom Smith had had a great spring training, you release Adrian Gonzalez. You're not on the hook to pay him anything other than the major league minimum, so what's the big deal? And um, and if Dom Smith did not have a good spring training, and we know he was injured, um, you have a veteran. You have a, a professional hitter who, sure, at 35 is clearly on the downside of his career, but he's a professional hitter. If you can get 100 games out of him, great. And right now, Right now, Sandy looks pretty smart for bringing in Adrian Gonzalez. I mean, he doesn't have a – he's not exactly tearing the cover off the baseball, but he's had some huge hits. The grand slam Sunday night, you know, the the at-bat against the lefty last night, you know, to drive in the the go-ahead run. And he just – when he's at the plate, he just seems professional. You know what you have. You know you have a multiple-time all-star. Um, on the field defensively, he still can make the picks around first base. So, again, it comes down to using your resources wisely. And if you're going to start Adrian Gonzalez every day, probably not. You know, you're probably not going to get as much out of him. He'll wear down. It'll become frustrating for everyone. But if you use this guy wisely and, and use him against most right-handed pitching, resting him against left-handed pitching, um, making sure if you're facing a bunch of righties in a row that he gets a day off every you know four or five days, and think of him as a resource on the bench. And when he's not playing, he's obviously a great bench piece as we saw last night. So yeah, and again, he's using Mickey's using Flores, he's using Gonzalez, he's using him in the way that he's getting something out of both players. He's getting the most out of the position, as Earl Weaver used to say when he would platoon his left fielders, and. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Gonzalez has so far been a good pickup. Um, at the moment, he's not blocking anyone because Smith, you know, still needs to get his uh, – he still really needs to go through a spring training at this point. Um, so, great. Yeah, happy with Adrian Gonzalez. Mr. Prince? Yeah, Adrian Gonzalez, you know, when that classic case of, well, take a flyer on the guy. It's only the major league minimum, and – yeah, yet, yet there was uh, so, some grumbling and some rolling of eyes, and there we go again. But there was no downside, as, as Rich said, and, you know, he can hit. may not do it as often. It, it reminds me of the year the Mets had Gary Sheffield, that Sheffield could only do so much, and they probably overused him, and he was playing you know, the outfield, which required a little more athleticism. But you, know, you would just watch, especially early in the season, Sheffield hit and say, boy, does this guy have a clue? Does this guy know what he's doing? And you got an appreciation all over again for what a career the guy had had. And isn't it nice that we can at least get the fumes of that? And, you know, right now I, I see us getting what there is to get out of Adrian Gonzalez. And I'm a lot higher on him now than I was, so about nine games ago or whenever it was that I watched him, I, I just felt bad for the guy in the cold at City Field, moving slowly at first base. You know, by all appearances, 
I, I have no idea what he does for his back or, or what he has under his uniform. But like, does this guy have a back brace on? I just feel feel like I'm watching an old timers game here. Um, but really, you know what? Maybe he's just having a day that he couldn't get loose. And um, you know, Bridge catalog the uh, the big hits, and you know, he he seems very comfortable in his role as you know one of the elder statesmen on the team. And right now, every, everybody seems to complement as well as complement both spellings, each other. And he seems to be an important part of that. So I'm, I'm glad he's here. And, you know, let, let Dom Smith figure out what he needs to figure out. And that'll all take care of itself. And then, like I said, uh, you know, Wilmer is there for the days that Gonzalez isn't there. Perhaps we'll see Jay Bruce at first base. Who, who knows who will be playing where. Uh, you know, as Callaway, uh, you know, not only juggles lineups, but, but juggles positions. So I'm very happy to have him here. Uh, last note about first base, I would only encourage Met fans to keep your eye on Peter Alonzo at, at uh, Binghamton. Uh, just keep your eye on him. Uh, I, got my high, I got my hopes high for him. Uh, second base, Rich. I'm going to put it this way to you. You know, many GMs in the business at that point in time said, this guy can't play anymore. I'm going to say Asdrubal Cabrera, and I'm going to say Johnny Peralta. Rich, take it away. Uh, well, well, yeah, right. Um, Asdrubal Cabrera. Well, here's a guy who you know kind of got under my skin last year. I think got under the skin of a lot of Met fans when he talked about wanting to be traded, and and okay, so he stayed. And ironically, while the, in the veteran purging that took place, he was the one who was not purged, and now he's here again. And, and lo and behold, you know, in the January time frame. Here's Esdrubal saying, well, yeah, okay, I'm happy to be here. I don't want to play third so much. I want to play second. And then my eyes rolled again. It's like, again with this guy. You know, he's here and he's, he's you know, being kind of a pain in the ass. But, um, but, and then he bats clean up on opening day. He doesn't get a hit. And it's like, ugh, all right. But now, let's look at this line. He's hitting 333 with a 388 on base percentage. And he had those two home runs the other night, and the second one of which was absolutely prolific, an absolute bomb on a 3-0 and pitch that when they absolutely needed the home run. So, yeah, Cabrera so far has turned his critics – I, with uh, me being one of them, he's turned his critics around. And, uh, of course, we always caveat, very small sample size. He is an older player, and – that being the case, I hope Mickey is able to, A, recognize that, and B, give him the rest he'll need. You know, Cabrera's 32. But let's make sure that we don't burn this guy out, because right now he's really something. He's a great resource to have. Switch hitter, power. Um, he'll give you solid defense at second base. Hopefully his whining is behind him. And, and my only concern with Cabrera is – making sure Mickey, like I said, gives him appropriate rest and so he stays on top of his game and he doesn't get worn down. I've had an issue with second base ever since they traded Dilson Herrera, but that's for another podcast. Uh, I'm absolutely giddy with the guy. I really am. Uh, Greg, take it away. <laughs> yeah, I think it was – maybe it was uh... – I don't know. Somebody put a spell on the 2017 Mets because Cabrera was the ultimate team guy, I thought, in 2016. He, to me, he was their MVP of, of the wild card 
chase, you know, culminating in that dramatic home run he hit against the Phillies. But really, all year, out there on bad knees, you know, whispering in Cespedes' ear, um, getting big hits. I mean, he was he was still came here with with very little fanfare and really was as important as anybody is carrying that team into the playoffs. And then last year, he kind of presented himself in the way Rich painted. And, yeah, there, there was kind of, I think we had some collective amnesia, not not without cause, that uh, maybe this guy is a bad apple and needs to move on and we need to move on from him. But, you know, maybe this is also part of, you know, Callaway's impact, that he, you know, listened and the front office listened to this guy and said, okay, you don't want to play third. We'd rather have you happy. You know, we we like your contract. We want to pick it up. We don't have a second baseman anyway. Uh, we know that shortstop was tough on you. Okay, fine, second base. Hopefully he's, you know, mentoring Rosario in his way. He's having influence like these other veterans and that he won't be, you know, run into the ground. And, yeah, I, I love the fact that he's, He's batted first, second, fourth, and fifth. Probably won't be batting fourth that much anymore, but he's comfortable anywhere. And it's like last last year never happened. Although I, I will say, once he settled in third base, the latter portion of last year, not that there was anything to play for, he played really well. So, you know, that this guy is also a pro. And, you know, he is, you know, to the extent that you can have an MVP of an 11-game season, he is, I think, the MVP of the 2018 Mets to date. We'll probably take another ballot at the end of September just to make sure. But um, you know, I, you know, he he fits he fits into the chemistry, stirs the chemistry, whatever it is he's doing, it's working. So um, maybe this is just one of those things that happens when you're having a good year that you you get years out of players you're kind of forgotten about, kind of given up on, weren't expecting a whole lot from. And uh, yeah, I'll just throw in that it's it's been 11 games, so maybe you know not, don't don't have to nominate him for 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 the King of Queens uh, and and all the other boroughs, but uh, so far so good. Absolutely, without a doubt. Uh, Greg, you brought up his name, Ahmed Rosario. Take it away. Ah, uh, you know, I think it's been a very promising start for Rosario. Still has some growth ahead of him which is, you know, you know, what is he, 22. So, of course, he has growth ahead of him. But I, I tell you what, watching Wheeler's start when I was trying to kind of cope with the idea that the Mets were actually going to lose a ball game <laughs> when they were down one nothing and being no hit and so forth. So, okay, there's two good things to take out of this game. One, you know, Wheeler obviously having a great night, and there's no shame I mean, putting aside being no hit by the Marlins, there's no shame to being on the wrong end of a one nothing game when your starting pitcher goes this deep. God knows as Mets fans, we've seen every great Met pitcher have games like those. But the other thing that really struck me was watching Rosario on two different plays, you know, neither one of which you know I, I remember specifically who was batting, but they were balls he had to pick up on the run and get rid of and get them to first base and get the runner, which he did both times. I was just thinking how far he's come from that tick of his of of patting the glove, the double clutching before throwing, which I think I saw a little bit of at the very outset of the season. And, you know, I'm sure it's going to be a process, uh, you know, to to smooth out those those rough edges. But it was great to see it in action. 
know, it's great to see him, you know, hanging back, hitting line drives, not I, I don't know what they've told him. You know, we we got the idea going into the season that everybody was going to launch, launch angle university. Um, you know, he's not trying to hit crazy fly ball. He still, you know, lunges a little too much out of the strike zone, but, you know, we're talking about 22-year-old kid. And I, I think we're, we're getting the idea of why we were told Ahmed Rosario is one of the top prospects in baseball. And, you know, I hope I'm not, not putting the jinx on him, but I think it's, it's only going to get better as the season goes on, and uh, I look forward to seeing more. Third base, Todd Frazier. Uh, I was I was agreeable to signing him because it marked the the Mets weren't waiting around for David Wright anymore. It, it was it was to me it was a matter of resolution. They had gone you know forward with the situation, and that's why I appreciated the signing. Here we are, eleven games into it, batting two twenty two, no home runs, six RBIs, you know, four doubles, but. It seems like his presence is making more an impact than anything else. Rich, take it away. Agree, Mike. Um, Frazier is doing exactly what his statistics coming into the season said he would do. 222 batting average, but with a 375 on base percentage, which is really kind of sick that you have a 150-point differential between your, your batting average and your OBP, and that's exactly what he had last year as a Yankee, a Yankee White Sox. Um, you know, what that tells me is he's a, obviously the obvious is that he has a very strong, a very good eye, very strong knowledge of the strike zone. He's a veteran who knows, you know, when to lay off tough pitches, but, and I know our sabermetric friends will tell us that this is not a thing, but he is clutch. He is, he just, he doesn't get a lot of hits, but he finds a way to get the right hit when he has to. You know, he said it last night in the postgame. Although they didn't score in the inning, he broke up the no-hitter. It got them going, and it really did. It was a pitch off the plate. He got the bat on it, hit it up the gap. He'll do that, and he'll frustrate you too because he doesn't for high average. But he seems to be there when he has to be. On defense, he's... Actually, he's been worse than I thought he was. He's had a few bonehead plays, including the other night, when or last night I think it was, when or Tuesday night, when the ball was rolling up the third base line and, and he kind of let it go, kind of looked indecisive, and ended up being a hit. So he hasn't been the, uh, you know, I'll use a hyperbole here, he hasn't been the Brooks Robinson third baseman that we to- we were told he would solidify the defense there. At least not in my mind, he hasn't solidified the defense. He's better than what we had, but um, not outstanding. But last, but look at the play he made last night to end the game. When he had to make a play, he makes a beautiful play in the hole, gets the double play started. So uh, there's a – Frazier is – what he is is greater than the sum of his parts. And I think it's exactly what you said, Mike. He's, he's a presence more than his statistics. He's a presence. Greg, he's got everyone shaking salt and pepper. Hey, gr- grind on, I say. Uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, it was fun- it's funny. The other night I had the SNY pregame show on out of the corner of my eye. And just they were talking to somebody. I wasn't really paying attention. Out of, out of the corner of my eye, I said, oh, they're interviewing David Wright. And I said, wait a second, David Wright's on the team. It was Tom Frazier. And I was just, you know. 
a mistake on my part, but I, I think somehow that says something about maybe the changing of the guard, the passing of the torch. Um, you know, we all wish David Wright was playing right now and was part of this team. And, you know, we'll always be a part of this team as far as we're concerned. But, yeah, Todd Frazier's the third baseman of the Mets, and it's, it's not an ad hoc thing, which is what third base has been since late May of 2016, unfortunately, and for, for much of 2015 as well. Um, yeah, that presence is, is not to be trifled with. Uh, I saw a comparison uh, that may be apt, not defensively, but uh, in terms of presence, remember Robin Ventura coming here, kind of changing the character of the infield who played where, kind of changing the character of the clubhouse. And we all, you know, we remember Mojo Ryzen and greatest infield ever and all that. And, you know, we, we all, I think, uh, hold, hold 1999 uh, <laughs> close to our hearts. Um, that is, you know, it's funny that that's what they, they told us that's what Frazier brings to a club, and it's exactly what he's done. And, you know, if this is what helps win games and turns a collection of individuals into a team, then you got the right guy. And, you know, the batting average is abysmal, but it doesn't matter because every time he's had to get a uh, put his bat on the ball, get a big hit, get a big sacrifice fly, or, you know, when he's not drawing a walk, uh, he's done that. And, he, you know, the... He hasn't killed the team in the field, certainly, and you know he knows what he's doing out there. So again, you know, again, we I'm going to re- repeat myself three times now with Gonzalez, Cabrera, Frazier, all of them professionals, all of them veterans, and all of them, you know, in their own way, productive to varying degrees this year. But you know, this is what makes a team a team, and this guy who has managed to avoid playing on very good teams most of his career has a chance to lead one uh, pretty far, or at least it appears that way. And they, they haven't decided, again, it's April. Everybody's a contender in April, but the Mets are more of a contender in April than anybody else. So uh, I, I think it was the right fit for him. It was the right fit from a Mets standpoint, a right, right fit from the player standpoint. And it's it's nice to see it play out. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're all going to be doing that uh, gr- grinding uh, the salt and pepper motion. I realize um, I have never used a pepper grinder in my life or a salt grinder. So I'm kind of catching on to how to do that from watching these guys. I don't think any of them know how to do it either. <laughs> but uh, we, we, we will all, we will all, as long as they don't get carpal tunnel syndrome. That I can picture happening. Maybe last year I can picture that happening. Not this year. But uh, be, be careful uh, with the wrist is all I'll say. Not beyond the realm of possibility. Uh, outfielders. I, you know, I, me, I, I wanted to pay particular attention to Ioannis Cuspid. Obviously, you know, he's the big moneymaker on the team. He's been fighting through a flu, or through the flu, excuse me. Uh, but he had back-to-back game-winning RBIs. Uh he seems to have come into this season with a very serious, more professional attitude than perhaps we're used to. Uh, we're learning that he's great friends with Jay Bruce. Uh, he seems comfortable batting in the two spot in 10 or 11 games. Rally's got 10 RBIs, even though he's batting below the Mendoza line. Uh, you know, that's a lot of things to throw out there, but I noticed, 
his uh, reinvestment into his craft. How about you guys, Rich? Yeah, I agree. I, everything you're hearing from Mickey and, and observations from the reporters are that Cespedes seems to have a better focus this year, and we all know that with a guy like him who's an enormous talent, who sometimes like his mind seems to wander a bit, you know, to put it that way, um, that focus is really the key for him because he certainly could back it up with his natural ability. Um, and everybody's saying he's he's hard-nosed, he's wants in there. You heard Mickey say it last night, the flu and the whole thing. But he wants to be in there. He wants to win. He wants to assert his leadership on the team. These are all things we didn't hear in 16 and 17. Was that Terry Collins versus Mickey? Who knows? Is it a, somehow something in Cespedes that he's embarrassed about the fact he couldn't stay on the field last year, maybe. Um, but it's great to see that he's emerging into not only great talent, but a leader on the team leading by example, by you know, trudging through illness to be out there. I can't say I, can't say I entirely love that. You know, I, I kind of wish he, he didn't play last night, so he'd have two days off in a row to get healthy. But, okay, it worked out. Uh, he had the game-winning hit on Tuesday night, so it's working out. Um, I know we're getting short on time, so just other comments on the outfield. I look at the outfield the way I look at the pitching staff. Bruce, yes, he had a grand slam, but he's not really there yet. You could see he's still getting – he hasn't quite gotten it yet. Cespedes, same thing. You know, he hasn't been to his own yet, but yet they're winning. So the outfield will be better than it is. Of course, Conforto, I don't know, that guy's just on another planet, but – um, Conforto and Ligaris actually are, are hitting well, but you know you're going to get more from Cespedes and Bruce. So the outfield in aggregate, I look at it as the team is winning with what I would characterize underperformance by the outfield, and I'm very encouraged that that underperformance will not last. It will only be a harbinger of, of good things when they start playing well. The, the live portion of the show is going to cut off, folks, but uh, we'll continue on for a couple of more minutes. You can download it, and you can always listen to it afterwards. Uh, so we're uh, not done by any means, like I said, a couple of more minutes. Uh, but, again, the live portion is going to cut off at 1030. Uh, Greg, Cespedes, uh, what do you think? You know, it's, it's interesting, the whole bit about he played through the flu. Callaway says, you know, I, I have. Do you not want to play? Do you want to sit? And like, no, I insist. He demands it. Somehow, in, in, in another parallel universe, you know, this become this blows up because Cespedes gets, you know, he strikes out and uh, he infects his teammates. And how come Callaway can't uh, handle Cespedes? You know, he should be able to tell him to sit. Uh, but that didn't happen. Instead, you know, it's very valiant and gallant and everything else. So, think things are going very well indeed. Uh, I'll say that Cespedes has the best slumps because he goes two for 21 or whatever it is, and the two hits win games. Um, you know, he's always going to be, I get the feeling, you know, depending on how much he opens up and depending on how often, quite frankly, he speaks in English, it's going to be something of an international man of mystery to us. And it's just so hard to get a read on the guy because one minute he you know, looks askance at a drop third strike and can't be bothered to take one step toward first base, and then at the next breath, he's you know, running into the stands to try to catch a foul ball that he has no chance of catching and taking extra bases and, and making dives. And, you know, so it's just hard to really say, well, this is a guy who's, you know, 
picking daffodils out in the outfield versus, you know, this is a guy who's running through walls for you because he's been in a little bit of both. And you always wind up using phrases like, you know, he marches to his own drummer, which, you know, is never really said in a complimentary fashion. Um, but the guy, we, we know what he can do when he's locked in. And if he is focused more so than he has been before, that's all for the better. And I, I would not be afraid to sit him if, you know, for his own good, well, the team's own good. You know, you're, you're juggling, I guess, four outfielders at the moment, you know, five when you have Nemo, all of them deserve some playing time. Uh, somebody's got to sit once in a while. Somebody's got to pick up a first baseman's glove. You know, better than not having enough outfielders. So, uh, you know, it, it, it will be interesting to see how, how Callaway fits everybody in. But, uh, you know, I think uh, this is Cespedes with the flu. Uh, I, I hate, hate to be a pitcher and face him when he's, uh, when he's healthy and, uh, you know, isn't, doesn't have to worry about going back to the clubhouse to blow his nose. Uh, I do believe his 10 RBIs are a machination of Callaway's lineup with Rosario batting ninth and, you know, having bat, Cespedes bat second and whatnot. But uh, I, I'm still not a fan of batting him second second in the lineup. Uh, last word on that. Let's move on to center field. Rich, uh, both of you, we agreed that bringing Conforto back before May 1st was perhaps foolish. Uh, nevertheless, here he is. Uh, you know, good for him. He's playing. He seems healthy. It created a somewhat unfortunate situation for Brandon Nimmo. And, you know, Juan Lagares is going to continue mission uh, being, you know, or coming off the bench, rather. So uh, take it away. Center field. Well, um, it's interesting because Conforto playing center field automatically makes center field a, a strength for the team. And Michael Conforto as a hitter is he's really come into his own and he just looks like somebody who can win a batting title. Um, uses all fields, has power, smart hitter already, doesn't swing out of the strike zone a lot. And defensively, you know, Mike, you and I have talked about this before, Don't not a big fan of playing guys out of position, but he handles center field reasonably well. And so between Conforto, who I think is a perennial all-star in the making, and Ligaris, who... We all know what he could do defensively, and he's off to a really good start, albeit in limited at-bats. Offensively, yeah, center field's a strength on this team right now. Greg, the Mets totally revamped their their medical practices, procedures, oversight, you name it, they addressed it. So the fact that Conforto is indeed playing prior to May 1st, I guess, you know, is it okay to say he's good to go when you compare uh, it to history? You know, they it is probably as big a shock as the ten and one start that Conforto was back by the sixth game of the year. Since we <laughs> a weren't expecting that, and b only expect the worst where med injuries are concerned. You know, you know to to be fair to every trainer and doctor the Mets have employed and consulted, uh, you know, everybody is different and. Clearly, Conforto had the ability uh, to recover sooner, and you know he's he had no red flags in spring training, and he was indeed good to go when he was eligible to come off, and he's been very good to go since. 
you know, listen, you have to get Conforto in the lineup more days than not. And, you know, that probably bedeviled Collins. And it's some, it's a challenge for Callaway. Uh, I hate not seeing Juan Lingaris in center field. He is an asset defensively. Uh, there's no undervaluing that glove, but, you know, he is on a good day the fourth or fifth best hitter among men outfielders, so I understand why he's not playing. There was one play the other night, I'm trying to remember which game it was, I think it was again the second Marlin game, where it was a fly ball to right field with Lagares in center, Conforto in right. They are more or less converging. It was definitely Conforto's ball, but I would have loved to if it, but there was a runner on third, just the point with less than two out for the Marlins. I would have loved to have seen him call off uh, Conforto get in position and take the throw because at that moment every run seemed very important. This was the yeah, that was the inning Degrom was kind of having his troubles because you know that Lagares can throw out anybody from anywhere and Conforto can throw out people sometimes. And it's again that's not a knock on Conforto. I'm just saying that that is the kind of fielder Lagares is. And after so many years of the Mets, you know, devaluing defense. I, know, I hate to see them put an asset in cold storage, but, again, you understand why it's being done, and you understand they signed Jay Bruce and that he has a role to play, and he will, once he gets going, be a very valuable bat. And you've got to get Conforto in there more days than not. So, you know, not everybody is going to start every day, but players will find their way, and we, we were you know complimenting uh, Callaway on doing that with the pitchers. And I think we can uh, say that he's showing signs of doing that with his his position players. But it, it's still weird when you have a guy like Conforto and he's not. Maybe, I can see wanting to kind of build him up for maybe the first couple of weeks. You don't want to run him out there when he's still theoretically getting over the injury. But, man, you, you've got to get him in the lineup most days. I can see, you know, if, if he doesn't have the flu and his shoulders stays on, so I'm, you know, we're, we're talking about the kind of things that are bedeviling the Mets. Um, you know, I don't see how Conforto is, is not in the lineup and batting somewhere near the top of it. Rich, how cool is Jay Bruce's grand slam? You know, he, it's kind of Todd Frazier-like. He, he hasn't gotten a lot of hits, but he's gotten some big ones. And that grand slam was just um, – I don't know. You know. How do you pick the biggest hit so far of the season, 11 games in? But if you had to, how could it not be that hit? You know, the Mets are in Washington. Um, if you Like you say, Mike, if you want to be the man, you've got to beat the man. It's the first game of the season against them. They're down there for their home opener, kind of a seesaw battle. You know, DeGrom had done a great job getting out of a bases-loaded situation. Game in the balance, and, and Jay Bruce puts it away with a grand slam. So, um to me, so far, that's been the sentinel moment of the season. Um, obviously, there will be others as we go. But um, I have every confidence Jay Bruce will do what Jay Bruce does. You know, he'll hit 260. He'll hit 35-ish home runs or so. He'll drive you in 90 to 100 runs, and he'll get there. You know, he's he's another veteran professional player. And um, I think right field is in good hands with Jay Bruce. I really do. Greg, there's nothing saying you can't have a great day against a rival in April. You know, Jay Bruce, that was a cool moment, wasn't it? 
Yeah, you know what? Like, there have been so many cool moments since then. I almost, when you were talking about the Grand Slam, Jay Bruce, I'm like, which game was that? I just remember now that it was a week ago, and at the time, a whole week ago, I was thinking this is like one of the greatest games you're ever going to see in April, the way they took it to the Nationals under the circumstances that have been described here. Um, yeah, I mean, again, we, we, we met, we're now on our our fourth uh, at least uh you know, professional, veteran, all the, all those accolades, we like to throw at guys like that because he is producing. You know, when the year began, the, the word I heard myself using more than once was creaky. I worried about these guys, quite frankly, being a little too veteran. And uh, the, the, there weren't enough, you know, intangible to kind of make that worthwhile. But, you know, a guy like Bruce, you, you feel pretty certain that, you know, he is going to roll with the punches that he kind of understands that he may not be hitting it at, on Thursday, but on Friday he will be hitting. Uh, that if he's not playing one day, he will be playing the next three days. That this is not a guy who's going to rock the boat. And that this is a guy who seems to get along with everybody. It's a, such an interesting blend of personalities, this team, that. You know, you, you, you get the sense that despite the, the, the disparate personalities, which you're going to have on every team, obviously, uh, that they do come together. And there are some unlikely, you know, young and old, uh, you know, American and Latino and everything else that you want to say, say might drive people apart, you know, through no fault of their own, just kind of natural drifting around. That That doesn't seem to be happening here. You know, guys are playing together and, you know, laughing together and wearing salt and pepper T-shirts together and all of that stuff. And whether that's Frazier or, you know, all the veterans and the the, ma- the managers, who, who knows, maybe, maybe it's one of the younger players as well. Um, it's great to see. And I, I think, you know, again, it, it does feel a little crowded in that outfield. But I think Bruce you know, has a role to play. And the, the great thing, I think, is that, you know, it's not all going to fall on his shoulders to hit home runs. They've got four or five guys who can do that. Uh, you know, even Cespedes, who's got you know the broadest shoulders. Um, it's not all going to fall on him either. So you know, again, I, 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 as we've gone around the horn, gone all over the diamond, into the outfield. Um, you know, it, it's a, it's a really nice mix of of personalities and players. So uh, you know, what ten, ten out of eleven? Just keep doing that. Well said. Thank you, gentlemen, for an outstanding conversation about Mets baseball. Uh, thank you, truly. I think uh, more than Mets fans could, uh, could ask. I think we gave them a lot tonight. Uh, that said, let's get to our last word. Rich. Fun. Um, and the reason my last word is fun is that last season wasn't and the start of this season is, and um, this one feels a lot better. So I'll go with fun. Mr. Greg Prince, author, and like I say, proprietor of Faith and Fear in Flushing.com. Thank you for coming on this evening once again. Uh, you've always been a great friend of the show. Uh, your last word, sir. Well, thank you for having me. I will say warmth. I look forward to warmer days, <laughs> not only not only of City Field and other non-Marlins Park environs, but just in general. It's It's been a uh, ragged spring to date, and from a baseball perspective, I just think you know, 
not that there's been anything wrong with the way the Mets have played, but baseball is going to be crisper uh, once the air is not as crisp. So, you know, this is the summer game. And, you know, it's supposed to be. I was going to go to the game on Sunday, make my City Field debut, and I see 47 in rain. So I don't think I'm going to make my uh, City Field debut on Sunday. But uh, warmer days and sunnier days ahead for all of us, I hope. And, again, it's hard to say that metaphorically because there's nothing wrong with the way the season has started. But uh, let's let's have some nice weather out at City Field and uh, wherever the Mets are. Here, 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 here. On that note, uh, my final word is homecoming. Is that one word? I'm going to make it one word. Homecoming. The Mets are coming home and playing the Milwaukee Brewers and the Washington Nationals again. So, you know, I'm expecting uh, a, a festive, energetic, electric crowd at City Field. Uh, I'm anticipating that. Don't let me down, folks. I want to be out there for at least one or two of those games. So uh, that's that. On behalf of Rich, Mr. Greg Prince, and myself, Sam, who was uh, unable to partake in this conversation with us this evening in the Metsian Podcast, I thank you all. I bid you good night, and let's go Mets. Thanks, Mike. Let's go Mets. Let's go Mets.